This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Making Ghosts Scary. Multiversal Physics. Intro Adventures. And the Comte de Saint-Germain. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crinkle of Doritos bags, the querulous argument over who pays the last dollar of tip for the pizza tell us we have entered the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, I feel a cold spot. I see strange shadows at the windows. And my PKE meter, which for some reason I've brought to the gaming hut, is going bananas. Robin, <laughs> what is going on here? Uh, what is going on is we are going to try and look at ways to make ghosts and hauntings scary in your role-playing session. Uh, in a previous segment, in uh, one of our most recent episodes uh, before this one, we talked about the cycle of ghost and haunting movies that is uh, all the rage or possibly starting to dwindle in theaters near you. One thing about seeing all of those different ghost stories, if you watch a bunch of them, is that quite often they don't have a third act. They don't know where to go with their ghost story to escalate it into a sufficient sense of real danger and threat after the initial first stages of little creepy things going on. In 
role-playing gaming, uh, we have one big weapon in our arsenal that makes it a little easier to have psychological things affect the players and make them feel tense, which is that we can make their psychological state a resource. We can give them, uh, you know, sanity points or stability or whatever you want to call it in different horror games, but that can be a resource that you can uh, chip away at so that the players genuinely do not only necessarily, you know, have a sense of unease when you describe, oh, well, you were just out of that room and now you're back and the things on the table have been rearranged. Well, for players who are used to in other genres smashing down doors and attacking monsters on the other side of them or escaping from black holes in their spaceships, rearranged stuff on a table is not going to be as creepy if it happened to you in real life under that sort of suggestive set of circumstances. But if it costs you the mental equivalent of hit points, we're already some way along the battle to making that creepy. But Ken, do you have other things in your uh, scaring people, rattling your chains uh, quiver that you might want to suggest for making ghost stories scarier? Uh, the thing about making ghost stories and haunted houses scary, and like every other horror game really, is that if you don't begin with a buy-in by the players, it's not going to become scary. So you have to at least have the players be willing to play in a ghost story. In the same way that if you're watching a haunted house movie, you have to be willing to be scared by it in order for it to work. You know, simple, you know, jump-out musical stings aside may startle you, but if you're going to crack wise and eat popcorn and, you know, uh, uh, play on your phone or whatever else and refuse to be connected to the film you're not going to be scared by it because it none of the other things that it's doing can work. The same thing you have to do in horror games. In a ghost story, specifically, the buy-in then has to move one further in, I guess appropriately, that the players have to find something interesting, or you have to offer them something interesting, something that the players want, not necessarily to know, but to, uh, you know, some some goal. And between them and that goal, the ghost and the haunt has to exist. And so sort of the direction that you're heading with this is that everywhere the players look should be unnatural, should have whatever creepy effect that the ghost has. So that there's a sense that once they've committed to whatever goal is, they are trapped in the haunting as a story, as an experience, as a game session, as opposed to saying, well, look at that. That's a haunted house. Back out. Shut the doors set it on fire and move on, which is, of course, what we're always, you know, wanting the characters to do in the movies. <laughs> you know, the, once the first batch of blood comes down the wall, it's time to, you know, burn the house down and, you know, make an exciting movie about insurance fraud. Right. And another way to make it scarier is to have a set of secondary characters, of Game Master characters, through whom the horror reflects, so that you may be afraid yourself of losing your sanity, but you also really want to protect this sympathetic family who live in the house and aren't able to get out of the house. And you have to also, I guess, in this case, have some sort of justification why the player characters can't just get them out of the house. So uh, it gets a little tricky, for example, if you have a wealthy dilettante character in a Cthulhu game, you don't you have to have some justification, I suppose, of why that character can't just, uh, you know, buy the family a new house. They can't just throw money at the problem and get out of that. So how do you sort of tackle that problem if you want to use this useful device of, you know, you're scared not just for yourself, but for the people and particularly the children involved? Uh, I guess you can go to the standard 
you know, the now standard thing in these haunting movies, which is that the haunting will follow them wherever they go. So you could have the dilettante buy them a new house, uh, make it inconvenient and difficult and have them have to forego other things, you know, sell their Duesenberger, as it were, and then they set them up in the new house and then suddenly things start happening there. I mean, when you look at a, uh, that sort of, it, it goes to the the sort of Henry Jamesian, or not Henry James, uh, M.R. Jamesian rule of haunts, which is that the haunt has to affect the person. The, it, it, you know, you no house is haunted until someone experiences the haunting. There's no ghost story until there's an observer or a victim. And the player characters, therefore, have to wind up being, if not the focus of the haunting, they have to be, you know, the target of it or be, you know, as you say, care about someone who is the target of it so much that they might as well be the target of it, that attacking the, the NPC is, is like attacking them. And so the personalization of it, I mean, James does it by personalizing the, the, the sort of, you know, imp of the perverse and the, and the fact of, of bad luck and of things that, you know, you just, once you uncover it, you are connected to it regardless of what else you do, that there's some, magical or occult tie between you and the haunt because you have, you know, read the book or, or made the rubbing or, or whistled the whistle or whatever it is. And so that tie to the players and, and it, it, I find that it really works effectively if there is some buy-in on the player's side that they have indeed earned that connection. And so, uh, you know, if a character goes up and there's a door and they open the door, they may feel that's not really fair. But if they go up and they have a, you know, a, a, a premonition that if they open the door, something terrible will happen and they open the door, then that same player will say, well, yeah, I had a premonition. That's how it is. Or if they, you know, if they, you know, are talking to the ghost, then they will feel, well, I had a connection with that ghost and maybe they didn't know it was a ghost. Maybe it was the kind that can pretend to be a person for a while. And then if the ghost is, you know, battening on them, they may object to, you know, its specific tactics or whatever, but they won't object to the fact of the haunting. Whereas in a lot, I mean, it's different from a standard dungeon, and I think that that's the, that's the way you can tell a haunt from just a house that's full of orcs, is that the haunt makes that personal connection, and if the character feels that they've earned it, or, you know, yep, that's the, that's the bad luck of being an adventurer, that that haunt is now part of them, then they will continue to be in the story, which is, as I say, the crucial part of it. A haunting story often has a horrible murder backstory that explains, uh, at least to start with, why the house is haunted. And then often as they're going through the experience of exploring the house and trying to get rid of the haunting, they discover more and more about the horrible murder incident. But one way that you could tie the players and therefore the characters more into it is to ask them to each of them supply a reason why they are connected to the house or that story. And that's, you know, why does it matter to you that, you know, there was a murder here a generation ago? How does that actually tie into your story? And why is that going to make you want to hang around even as things start to get hairier? Yeah. And I guess that sort of points up a difference. Are you running this haunted house story as a one shot in which, you know, you can provide all of the hooks and once the players agree to play, the scenario and they open up the, the, the pre-gen and the character sh sheet says, you know, you were born in this house, but you left it long ago. And this is your first time coming back. 
they have made that they've sort of signed that contract that I was talking about that says yes, this house is important to me and I and I am now earning the haunting to an extent. Although it works even better if, as you say, they've provided the answer. It's harder to do, I find, in a in a you know like a Call of Cthulhu, you know, the classic Call of Cthulhu game where every single uh, party member had to have about nine uncles so that they could all die mysteriously and leave them the house in their will. And uh, you, you have a series of haunting hauntings, none of which have a personal connection or have the most artificial of personal connections. And so I think bringing that you know level of connection to a group of player characters who are going through a series of stories and a haunting is just one of them is a lot harder. And you can't... It's no more realistic to say... Hey, dilettante Steve, why do you find this house so compelling than it is to say, you know, um, uh, hey, dilettante Steve, this house seems oddly compelling. I don't think that, you know, by entering the haunted house adventure, I think you need some other actual connection as opposed to, you know, even something as, as personal as having dilettante Steve say something. Now, if dilettante Steve has said something earlier on in the game, where it's like, oh, you know, or he's got a, a thing on his character sheet that he has the second sight, and you can either ask him, where'd you get the second sight, Dilettante Steve? And he says, oh, I was uh, raised by my uncle in, a, in, in the Cairngorms, and, th- and he had it, and so that's why I have it. And then you can say, all right, guess what? Your uncle is dead. You get to go to his house in the Cairngorms, and now we're going to learn where your second sight really came from, and that will tie into Dilettante Steve. But if Dilettante Steve is just part of a group of hardy investigators, and they're helping out their buddy, you know, Irving with his haunted house, you you have to make that connection, and it's a lot harder to do it in play, even if the players are willing to be you know haunted, and even if they're you know obligingly uh, scared by the the notion of the of the evil place that uh, say Shirley Jackson does so well. Right, and the, the particularly the I just inherited this house is possibly the you know least compelling way to get somebody into a ghost story because then it's. Well, I noticed that it's in disrepair and haunted, so I sell the house, yes, right? Exactly. So that you need some sort of connection to the murders that are at the heart of it rather than the house, I think. And one way, uh, well, first of all, quite often in an ongoing investigator campaign, it works perfectly fine if just one of the characters has a personal connection and there's sort of the conceit in play that you'll kind of rotate premises and everybody else is tied to it because dilettante steve is mm-hmm. right they're dilettante yeah. steve's friends so they care yeah. about him and yeah, he becomes uh, the npc and who is threatened right and uh you know you could basically you could ask everybody to suggest you know compelling ideas why they would be drawn to the house or have to solve the problem of the house and then you would just pick the one that seemed the most apt or even just the one from the player who you're sure will show up every week for the duration of this particular adventure. Mm -hmm. And you could have all sorts of different inroads to this. If it's Lovecraftian horror, I guess just horror in general, dreams are always a way to sort of draw you in. So there's a, you have a dream of a horrible destiny in this house and you become increasingly paranoid and freaked out and incompetent until you go and deal with it. And again, that could be a matter of discovering you know, your connection to the, the murder story. Or, you know, if you're feeling really ambitious, you could, uh, you know, slowly reveal that everybody has a different stake in dealing with the house. So we've talked a lot about getting into the story, but one of the other challenges about a haunting story is satisfyingly escalating it so that it really blows up at the end. And the problem with uh, ghosts as a, an antagonist is that they are less physical than other creatures. So you could 
you know, have the ghosts reach a point where they're beginning to materialize and the more and more fear that they suck out of the people in the house and the further they go and driving them insane, the more solid they become so that they actually become physical enough to fight at the end of the uh, scenario. You could have the, you know, the whole house starts to collapse as you find the secret object that you need to destroy in order to exercise the ghosts. Are there other ways you can think of, Ken, that you could really have a satisfying climax to a, a haunting story rather than just sort of a collection of weirdo low-level events that slowly erode the character's uh, sanity stats? Well, with a haunted house, you have an advantage, and I think you have that advantage far more strongly in games, although you could have it in movies if anyone were capable of shooting setting correctly. But you have the advantage that the characters are already using the haunted house as a map and a metaphor, that the farther they go through it, you know, again, we're trained up in our gaming DNA to believe that the farther we go into something, the more dangerous everything gets. And if you can start with that expectation and just make sure that the various poltergeist effects or the kitchen knives or whatever come out, you know, about a couple of rooms in, and then they start feeling the cold draft that makes them save versus suffocation, and then they start having more and more horrible things happen, and simultaneously they're solving the mystery and saying, oh, the secret is in the attic, or the secret is in the uh, coach house, or the secret is in the basement, or the secret is in wherever it is. The secret is all through the house. It's built of shubnigareth wood. You know, the house is the ghost. Whatever the secret is, they are moving closer and closer to it, and as they move closer and closer to it, the players themselves get more and more interested and more and more, you know, pulled in and they expect things to escalate. And the trick to having a final encounter that is satisfyingly scary and satisfyingly dangerous, I mean, the dangerous is just a, ga a question of the gaming math. I mean, you look at the, you know, characters and you say, you know, how many monsters could they, get? at what point is something dangerous to these characters given their numbers? And you say, Okay, it's at ninth level or whatever, and you put your your ghost of ninth level in, and then that will provide a good dangerous fight, and the care and the players will will be able to feel that in a way that a movie watcher can't. When he says, "Oh, this CGI effect is ninth level," they don't know any difference between that and <laughs> all the other times the ghost showed up. So we have an advantage in terms of that with a haunted house, with a straight haunt story or with a ghost story. The way to make it scary, I have always felt, or to make that climax work, is to make the climax something that is clearly endangering whoever is connected to the haunt. And it can, you know, mechanically, it might have been nothing but three rolls against, you know, save versus paralysis. Each roll made it a higher number because the story of how you have, you know, accidentally awoken the spirit of the statue and the spirit of the statue is in love with you and it's just showing up in all the statues and all the stone golems and all the whatever it is until you agree to be a statue and live with it forever in statue marriage. That's the thing that is terrifying the player is that, oh my God, I can't stay away from all forms of the human body because I have to live in the world and any of them could be haunted by the statue ghost. And now I'm terrified because my character is clearly going to wind up, you know, boned here <laughs> or stoned here. If you've made the, the sort of the scenery and the, and the road there suitably thrilling and interesting and, and, and spooky, the player will be terrified again with just a tiny mechanical escalation. And so the trick again is to really involve that player in their fate 
And obviously the easy way to do it is to make their fate a very bad one and give them a very clear path that is going towards their bad fate unless something happens. Another alternate climax is the idea of making the haunted house a non-Euclidean or an Escheresque haunted house. Is that once you're in, uh, you keep going, but you no longer corresponds to what was the exterior of the house would suggest, and that means that you've crossed some sort of portal into some sort of other realm, whether it's the spirit world, whether you've uh, fallen into your own psychology and need to get out, and so that the uh, way to destroy the haunting and uh, get out of the house again, and maybe even then destroy the house, is to get across the portal again, and then there would be a series of obstacles, which are still all obstacles consistent with the haunting set of tropes, but you're, you know, trying to get back out again once you're in, or trying even more so to get the, you know, the kids you're trying to protect, uh, which is basically, you know, that's the poltergeist formula. And if you want to look at a uh, haunting movie that does really succeed in escalating, it uses exactly that device of going off over across the other way and needing to come back and the house all blows up at the end. And so that, you know, is really a, a model of how to do that. And if you can pull it off in uh, role playing, I think you've uh, done well for yourself. There was a there was a movie called Grave Encounters that I don't know if you saw that did that non-Euclidean house, I think, or it was a non-Euclidean psychiatric hospital. And it did it really very well. And so if you're looking for sort of a, a model in, in terms of sort of the, not necessarily the scenario model, but sort of tone and feel and specific effects, that's worth watching. And it is, uh, I think, done considerably better than, than most haunted houses are in, in film. Something like Session 9, where you think it's going to be really great, and then it turns out to, you know, like you say, have no third act. That's, again, got a great setting, but it's it, that's all it's got. So... I, I would recommend the non-Euclidean house is a terrific effect. I remember really liking the film House 2, although it was terrible on every metric. But I think my nascent gamer brain was like, oh, if this were actually scary, this would be the greatest <laughs> movie of all time. Except for the fact that this isn't good in any way. It's great. Yes. But again, I mean, you can often see the architecture more clearly in a bad movie than in a good movie, because in a bad movie, the critical part of your brain is, is free to map the film. And when you look at the, the way that that Tesseract house is structured, it becomes a really good non-Euclidean haunting structure. I, I like the non-Euclidean haunt because, again, that gamer DNA of, oh, we've entered a killer dungeon is, is working for you, not against you. It, if the, 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 the really hard ones to pull off are something like uh, The Haunting of Hill House, where it's all psychological effects in the player characters, and there's almost nothing overt that ever happens. And that is something that really requires a lot of buy-in, and it requires you to be really, really good at, you know, sort of framing the sequence and, and providing the scares yourself. So the the sort of the more mechanical the story may be the better, and then if, if you're providing good scares, that, that will provide the, the suitable uh, connection. Yeah, I think the secret to doing the really subtle stuff is they the things that happen have to be very specific to the characters. So it's not just that you go into a room and things are disarranged, but you return to your room and you see that your uh, wallet is sitting on the bed instead of on the dresser, and then you pull it out and you see that the eyes of all of your family photos have been burned out. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, much more invasive than just a typical impersonal scare. Um, well, I think we've been in this uh, Escher-like segment uh, long enough, and it's time to... Burn it down and sell it for the insurance. Yes, indeed. <laughs>
This episode is also brought to you by World of Ataltus, the Temple of Modrin. An exciting new Pathfinder-compatible adventure that introduces players to the Ataltus setting. Kickstarting now! It's low prep and ready to play, complete with characters. World of Ataltus, a new fantasy setting, embraces and reinvigorates the familiar elements of fantasy games and fiction. Project creator Mark Tassin doesn't want you to trust in the awesomeness of a project he will one day complete. Far from it. Backers at any level score an immediate download of the full text, so you can see for yourself if it floats your Pathfinder-compatible boat. Temple of Modron serves as a mere first nibble of this exciting new world. Stretch goals bring it further to life with stories by luminary authors Larry Correa, David Farland, Matt Forbeck, Ed Greenwood, Dave Gross, John Helfers, Stephen S. Long, Mel Odom, Gene Rabe, Lucy A. Snyder, Michael A. Stackpole, and Elizabeth Vaughn, with a cover by fantasy illustration icon... Larry Elmore. Two additional Pathfinder-compatible sitebooks, the Greenbrier Tavern and the Town of Thornwall, are already in production. You know the Kickstarter drill, Ken and Robin listeners. The project and its tantalizing stretch goals only happen with your support. Strap on your crowdfunding swords, gather up your material components, and toss some gold coins at the creation of this fantastic new world. Before it's tragically too late. So we're walking up some beautiful neoclassical steps into a planetarium. We're passing a plastic model of the atom, and then along the way we're seeing some beautiful crystals hewn from the Earth, because this time we're inaugurating a segment that I thought we thought we would have from the very beginning and have yet to do. It's fun with science! This week I thought we would tackle the new thought in the realm of ultra-high-level physics, which is that we may live in a multiversal universe. There's a physicist named uh, Max Tegmark, who is part of a, a promotion for his book about the new, even more crazy world of theoretical physics. He has a number of different ideas he proposes to float, one of which is that the underlying matter of the universe is not matter, but just pure mathematics, uh, which makes me think of the ones and zeros of the matrix. And also the idea is that the uh, universe uh, may have in its initial uh, flowering from the Big Bang expanded essentially to literal infinity, essentially instantaneously, which for some reason leads him to think that, in fact, all of these different alternate versions of our world may actually exist all in parallel, separated by vast, vast gulfs of space, so that somewhere a gazillion light years from now, there's another identical planet to this one in which it is almost the same world, except it's the uh, Ken and Monty Cook Talk About Stuff podcast. A dark universe indeed. Yes. And then you <laughs> zoom out to another universe, and it's the uh, Ken and Jonathan Tweet Talk About Stuff. And then you go further, further still, and it's uh, Ken and Elvis Talk About Stuff. And then finally you go to the furthest reaches, except there are no further reaches because it's inf infinite. And there's it's the Ken and Hitler Talk About Stuff podcast in which Hitler ends every argument by invoking himself. Exactly. It's the Godwin Godwiniest podcast of all. Yes. And so what this reminds me of is that Borges story of the Infinite Library, where there's a library that goes on forever, and every book on the shelf is a random arrangement of letters, meaning that some are absolute gibberish, and, you know, every so often you'll find Hamlet. And so... I cannot evaluate, not being a high-level physicist, uh, whether we do live in a Borgesian universe, but I can evaluate what that gives us in terms of interesting pegs to hang 
uh, gaming and uh, story ideas on. So we in Geekdom are very familiar with the idea of a multiverse from our comical books with our Earth 1s and 2s and Bs and 3s. What else can we bring from this whole uh, set of new, so crazy it might actually be true, ideas about the universe? Well, I like the notion of combining his theory that the world is all literally made up of math, which sounds like someone has played a little sleight of hand with uh, the words made up of. But the, uh, <laughs> but, but the notion that the world is all literally math Reminds me of the old uh, Complete Enchanter stories by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, in which our hero invents the syllogismobile in which he convinces himself to logically alter the mathematical foundation of his universe. And when he opens his little eyes or the smoke goes down or whatever it is, because um, they were not interested in mapping out the syllogismobile, they were interested in going and fighting uh, Merlin, that he goes into a world of literature, because obviously... Back in the day when symbolic logic was all the thing, you could express a work of literature in symbolic lo logic, you could express a, our world in symbolic logic, and you could therefore, where those two equations differed, you just had to swap out variables or something, and then eventually you would translate from our world to the world of the fairy queen, or to the world of uh, Norse mythology, or to the world of the original justice society, or whatever it is you wanted to go to. And this is, you know, when he talks about flying in a spaceship to the world where Ken and Frank Lloyd Wright talk about stuff, um, but we have to, I have to hunch down to do it. The Because Frank has built the huts so that they're all his height. Exactly. Yeah. So the, all, the huts are all five foot uh, eight. And so the notion that you, you can fly in a spaceship to a, a world where X is true. Again, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen the math and maybe the, the, the journalist gets it wrong, but you can have infinite apples and never run across an orange, right? So the fact that the world is infinite or the universe is infinite does not imply that there are alternates, that the quantum many worlds theory applies spatially. I mean, many worlds theory goes back in, in grown-up people math to like 1957 when Hugh Everett, you know, offered that as a way to make quantum mechanics not hurt everyone's head that, you know, no, quantum mechanics is true. It's just that the altered states exist in another dimension. And so you don't have to worry about, you know, them, you know, flying to the world where Ken and uh, St. Germain talk about stuff because that's in a parallel universe and we can't get to it. And so the notion that rather than having parallels, everything sort of just exists in one basically flat plane, I don't know why, you know, Max Tegmark would be changing, you know, 50-year-old math. Obviously, he must have some reason, but it's not very clear to me, and I don't intend to learn enough cosmology to make it clear to me because it doesn't really matter one way or the other. I think in terms of gaming, you can look at all manner. Of, I mean, the alternate universe is, is so you know rich a possibility for, for gaming and, and for story making that there's no wonder that it predates the notion in science or, you know, I don't know if it predates the notion in philosophy, but it definitely predates Everett. I mean, the, the alternate universe in in science fiction goes back to the 30s. And so if we're going to just stick to this one premise that the parallel Earths all actually exist in one infinite expanse of space, and that if you find some way to get around the limits of space travel, that you could then somehow connect to these other worlds, I think gives us some fun premises to play with. For example, you could just play with the idea that 
moments of deja vu are moments when you are becoming uh, psychically attuned uh, through quantum gravity waves, which we may have just established exist. And as gravity waves move throughout the universe, they can pick up little psychic resonances and carry them across this otherwise unbridgeable gulf of space to your near facsimile worlds. So that when you are uh, having a hard moment of deja vu where it's more than just a glimmer but you know for a couple of minutes you the thing you're experiencing you're also remembering and i have had that happen to me it may in fact be that you are uh, a gravity wave is allowing you to communicate uh, both the memory and the experience to you at the same time and from that idea you could imagine a group of theoretical physics magicians who try to start to map out and understand our psychic interaction through gravity waves and therefore start to take the existent but useless roster of psi powers that exist in our world and quantify them and categorize them and train people to attune to gravity waves so that they become more like the cool, useful psychic powers that we know from fiction. And so you could have a whole campaign based around the idea that theoretical cosmologists are designing a new form of scientific magic and all of the problems and obstacles that flow from that. And you could do everything from a drama system campaign, which is just about the emotional relationships between all the people in this uh, research team as they attempt to create this new psychic sorcery to a more traditional sort of weird modern sorcery story as people do start to develop uh, powers and they're not you know, invoking the great occultists of the past, but they're rather, you know, identifying with different uh, concepts in uh, theoretical physics as they learn to, uh, you know, fly at the speed of light or toss heavy objects around or read people's minds and so forth. I think if I were building a drama system game based on this, I would be so tempted to make sure that in the drama system game, you've got players and their doppelgangers, right? That because we we know that there's these parallel people over there who are having the same lives, who cause the deja vu, and whether it's gravity waves or it's a quirk in the math, right, where the, the two variables are drawn closer together, and all you need is, you know, to drop in an equal sign there, and you can make the, the, the connection. But some way in which the people in the in the game are either, you know, that there's a replay component, that there's a component of swapping people out that, you know, maybe it's not necessarily your mirror self, but it's maybe yourself with the polarity switched. So if your polarity is between science and magic and you think really hard, you've actually swapped minds with the guy from the other universe who is, or the other earth who is you. And so his polarity is more likely to be magic over science, you know, however it works. But I would really want in a, in a, in a situation like this that begins with, uh, there is an infinity of earths in which Every single minor change that has ever been made is true. I would really want to draw that into the game as opposed to simply say, you know, we have done Technobabble X thing and now we have psychic magic. I, I, I think it's, it's more fun or more drama system-y fun to, to play around with this notion that there are mirror versions of yourself who have just the tiniest, slightest difference and that the, the game can turn on those tiny differences or you can, you know, uh, ally with yourselves against the other people. Maybe the one guy who can communicate with himself on the other universe has a tiny advantage because he's always got two minutes of warning of what's going on. There's just some way to, to pull that in, I think. And if you add a premise that allows you physical 
travel in some sort of quantum teleportation between fractionally different universes. You could sort of have a Heinlein meets uh, Dick campaign in which your reality is suddenly being invaded by another almost identical version of the planet that's uh, decided to wipe us out and take our resources and so that you're uh, fighting a war with yourselves and that you, you you know you could run into yourself on the battlefield and in fact you're highly likely to run into yourself on the battlefield because this other version of you that's coming to invade your planet is only fractionally different from you so of course he has all the same skill set as you did all the same uh, nearly the same history uh, the same uh, personality except uh, for some reason this planet has a greater or they just thought of it first uh, a greater rapacity and so you know you know there will be a moment when uh, you tom cruise are going to have to fight tom cruise on the uh, on the battlefield and uh and there's possibly something really momentous happens when alternates meet one another, or it could just be part of a great philosophical torque around in which uh, that's just as meaningless as everything else in the universe. And whether it's an open invasion or a secret invasion, have a invasion of the body snatchers in which you're snatched by yourself from the parallel world. And, you know, it's not that you're made out of pods, but you have, you know, you know, vujade, right? You, 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 your deja vu works backwards, and that's the only way that you can tell, uh, you know, the sense that you've never been here before. That that's the only symptom of being in another world, and so it takes like, uh, you, you can't just poke someone and see if they if they bleed green. You have to sort of spend a lot of time with them doing psychological profiles and Voigtkamp tests and whatever that that let them realize that no, they actually think in that just tiny microscopic mathematical amount different than we do. And then you have sort of a philosophical question of what happened to the people that they swapped out for? Did they then swap out d downhill to the next Earth? And is that next Earth having problems? And what happens when eventually the math does change, either catastrophically or gradually enough that rather than just being on the Earth where uh, Himmler lost the Second World War, you're on the Earth where Dinosaur Himmler lost the Second World War or, or something like that. Although, you know, Dinosaur Himmler was smarter than uh, human Himmler. Well, yeah, obviously, because he had two brains. He had a tiny one in his hips that helped him move his tail. As we know from Godwin's Law, whenever you invoke Dinosaur Himmler, it's time for a new segment. Blares from the tannoy overhead. It flashes on the telescreen. It is tattooed on your eyelids. It is that thing I always say, an echoing hut where we reiterate once more for your benefit what we have said until we are half sick of it. Robin, what is that thing that you always say that we're talking about now? That thing I always say is that the first full adventure for a new role-playing game, whether that be an actual fully fleshed out adventure that appears as an introductory adventure in the rule book, which is not that common these days, but is in Feng Shui 1, and there will be another one in Feng Shui 2, or either the very first adventure supplement that comes out that is a, a you know, full-length adventure rather than, you know, a little quickie for an anthology, is something that will forever shape the way that players 
play your game and particularly the way that GMs shape their adventures because they are going to consciously or otherwise model the adventures that they run based on the structure that you present in that introductory adventure. Now, very often nowadays, the GM advice section of a rules book will present you with a standard or default or baseline structure to work from, but that I don't think really clicks in for people until they see an adventure and run it. And so this means that uh, if you're designing a new game line, if you're developing a new game line, that you have to think more than you might be doing about how well constructed that adventure is and how exemplary it is of play of the game that you want to run. Ken, is this a, a thing that you are on board for that I'm always saying? I don't know necessarily. I mean, to some extent, I think that it is unavoidably true. And I think the question lies at the boundaries at, you know, to what extent do all Call of Cthulhu adventures resemble uh, the haunted house, the, the very first one where you fight the lich in the basement with a floaty knife? And to what extent do all Call of Cthulhu adventures rather resemble Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, that first uh, world-traveling, uh, globe-trotting campaign? I mean, I think you can make an argument over the course of Call of Cthulhu play that, you know, individual really powerful examples of adventures dropped into the, into the well shift things. I, I think. Yeah, I would you... certainly say that in the case of a really long-lived role-playing game that essentially remains the, the same, like Call of Cthulhu is possibly about to change more now mm, than it the, ever has in the exactly, past. Yeah. So that you can argue that those early adventures went on to uh, shape and inflect the way that people created other adventures later. And there may be another adventure that is now the state of the art for Cthulhu, but even that probably owes a debt, uh, possibly through several generations of influence, to uh, what the original one was. And that's definitely a transitional case because, you know, it's uh, a Cthulhu scenario, but it's also a exploring a space and killing a monster scenario. And there may, in fact, be other ones that are became more influential over time and, and more became the model. But as someone who's developing or presenting an introductory adventure, you still have to, I think, be prepared for the prospect of, of that adventure really shaping the way that people approach your game for a long time to come, and that you should then structure the adventure as much to sort of be the platonic ideal of whatever it is that you're trying to get across. So, you know, it should be if you're doing, you know, a new iteration of Vampire with a new introductory adventure, that introductory adventure should be as vampire as you can make it. Mm -hmm. And by which you mean as close to the core experience of play, or do you mean use as much of the bells and whistles of the setting? Um, I, I think all of them. I think what, whatever metric, it's got to invoke the core activity. I think it should bring in as many of the core setting ideas as will fit comfortably in one adventure. Now, you don't want to have an introductory adventure that blows all of the exciting elements of your setting in one go because you want to have a slow reveal. So, uh, for example, in, the, in Feng Shui 1, it doesn't have the heroes uh, learning all about the Qi War and encountering members of every single faction because that's not, in fact, the assumption of what a Feng Shui adventure is. It assumes that you kind of fight members of one faction for a while and once that seems to resolve itself, you move on to another faction and, and so on. So, to add all of the elements, even in that very simple setting, into a single introductory adventure would not 
really work. But the idea that you are fighting one faction in the war for Feng Shui sites is key uh, to it. And so in the new one, it's not the Lotus. It's a, a it's a new faction, the new Simeon army that uh, pops up and introduces you to the uh, Qi War. And also the new adventure is written because the new uh, game mastering advice gives you much more explicit tools, including a worksheet on how to structure default Feng Shui adventure, the new adventure has to follow that structure so that it becomes an example of how to do it. And so it's completely different, yet also structurally uh, delivers the same things. It doesn't repeat at least one of the major mistakes of the original Feng Shui introductory adventure, which is that the special thing about one of the fights is that it's in an enclosed space, which is still worth doing. The new Feng Shui still provides of modifiers and guidance for, you know, a cool fight of which the distinguishing uh, feature is that you don't get to move around much. But since the whole thing about Feng Shui is movement and freedom of description, that was actually a poor choice to have in that introductory adventure and is something that you should put off for later. So it's not a mistake that the new one repeats. Now, I, I want to keep going on the question of introductory adventures that we have rethought. But I, I also want to ask, Given that your that your first Feng Shui Adventure One, you know, made that error and didn't, you know, have big open armed freewheeling, do you think that players began setting Feng Shui fights in in small cramped rooms and then only later said, "Oh, right, and we get movement bonuses"? I'll maybe make that up and slowly worked into slightly larger rooms until finally they were fighting in a whole warehouse. Or do you think that it was fairly rapidly obvious that? the small room was not the key part of that adventure. And that, you know, when you say that something forms the template, you know, you can use the template, you cannot use the template, you can use half the template. How, how soon do you think it took feng shui game masters as opposed to you or whoever to come up with adventures that broke that template in the, in the sense that you're talking about? Well, e even this adventure just has one fight like that. Yeah. I think what is the more likely negative consequence of that is that X number of groups played the adventure and found that it, it contradicted what the rules set out to do and that some of them persevered past that and others just went, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't my thing and probably didn't even articulate any of that stuff. But just, you know, there were X number of people who didn't go on playing the game because that encounter was not as great as it could be. Now, this could just be a matter of, you know, me being a perfectionist and seeing something that could have been fixed. I'm not saying that, obviously, that's not a crippling thing that ended the audience for the game or stopped other people from not doing that. But it was, you know, it is still a bit of an own goal. Now, do you think that, and I want to take it away from Feng Shui for a bit, do you think that there are cases of adventures, classes of adventures, I should say, that have been closed off from a given game by its first adventure, but were theoretically possible? Do you think that Dungeons & Dragons, I don't even know what the first adventure for D&D &D would be, because it isn't, I don't even know what the first published adventure for that was, but let's say it's, you know, Village of Homlet or something. Well, Village of Homlet is an example of something really weird, right? Yeah. Because it's not actually an adventure. Yeah, it's, and it's not a dungeon. It's not a dungeon. <laughs> it's basically a setting book formatted as an adventure. And so consequently, uh, there are dozens and dozens, possibly hundreds and hundreds of groups of, uh, at the time, uh, probably mostly uh, young adolescent males who went through the village <laughs> uh, of Hamlet. That's the way to bet, Steve. <laughs> uh, and they said, well, here's all these p 
places with all these peasants in it, and the encounters list how much treasure there are, <laughs> and we're guys who go around finding little areas and killing everybody inside and taking their treasure. This is weird. I thought we were going to ki be killing, like, giant spiders and orcs and stuff, but... Whatever. These, these villagers, they have some... They have treasure listed. I think there are a lot of people who played Village of Hamlet going through and slaughtering everybody as, inside. As a Bosnian war game. Yes. And <laughs> uh, the and thus was, were, were born the murder hobos, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think putting all murder hoboism onto the Village of Hamlet's design may be... Well, the, the, the murder hobo is, is evolutionarily robust and would, yeah, would right. have risen in parallel. I'm not making that argument, but it is a really weird introduction to the game for a lot of people. I mean, so, but are the, is there a is there a class of, of, of game where you know the game, you know the introductory adventure, and you can visualize a, a practical batch of adventures that were closed off by that introductory adventure? I mean, are there whole worlds of Call of Cthulhu adventures that did not happen because they picked the haunted house instead of something else? I mean, are there whole worlds of Traveler that were closed off by... You know, whatever that uh, that first um, uh, uh, lost spaceship adventure was. I, I think it's more likely the case that there are games that we don't talk about now that people didn't continue to play and fix and make better because the first adventure wasn't anything. So is the thing you always say actually that if your introductory adventure counters your expectations for the game, there's less likely to be a second adventure? Um, sure. Yeah, that's another way to put it. Yeah. I mean, well, no, it's a different way to put it. It's a different thing that I, that one would always say. Because well, if all you're what saying I'm is, always saying is make sure your first adventure is really great and yes. really is an exemplary version of what it is that you want GMs doing. Because definitely GMs are going to go and create more versions of that, right? And mm -hmm. if you're lucky enough to have a longer life for your game, over time people may gravitate toward other adventures as being the state of the art for that game, mm -hmm. but they're going to gravitate based on the assumptions of that first thing. And I would also even say, you know, reconsider the little short, brief, kind of nothing introductory adventure that you sometimes see squeezed into a main uh, rule book that isn't really an example of, of the game that is just sort of will come out flat and disappointing, not necessarily even because it will shape people's feelings about other adventures, although possibly it will, but just because it, it doesn't do enough. Okay. Um, it, it doesn't show enough of the rules off, it doesn't show enough of the setting off, or it just... Or it doesn't show off the experience, right? Isn't it, a, may, isn't a fun it may do a great job of teaching the rules to you, but you didn't have enough fun. Right. And so it created the message that, oh, this game ain't so much fun, and uh, I don't see what the point is. Now, before we leave this hut, I, I want to ask a question of you, and I don't actually know the answer. The introductory adventure for Trail of Cthulhu, the Kingsbury Horror, was written specifically because it is the kind of adventure that I want to see more of. It was basically written using the the hope that this would form the template for play experiences with the game, and I was able to cheat because, obviously, Call of Cthulhu has 35 years or 40 years of uh, play experiences with that same game structure, so that my introductory adventure could be instead a sort of aspirational adventure that once you've played it you're like man i want to go into a ambiguous universe where there are no clear answers i want to have a lot of different clues a, a fog of clues that that is all haunting and weird and strange i want events to happen that i don't know what happens and i want it to be horribly dangerous and depressing and i want it to 
be tied into the actual history of the 1930s. And I did all of that in Kingsbury Horror, and I think it's a pretty terrific adventure, but I think no one in their right mind would call it an introductory adventure to anything, because it really is throw you in the deep end, and if you don't drown, it's going to be a really good swimming lesson. It is an introductory adventure in the following sense, which is that Trail of Cthulhu, especially uh, in the beginning, and I would think probably almost all the case still now, you're bringing a new version of Cthulhu gaming to people who already know the current version. Mm -hmm. And that what you're introducing is not Cthulhu gaming, you're introducing gumshoe Cthulhu. And that that very complexity of all of the different clues and the fact that you're not going to get all of them, but you definitely get all the ones you need to move forward, and its amb ambiguity and its literary quality, all of which build not only on uh, Cthulhu, but sort of the standard raising of the whole Delta Green line and even of German Cthulhu adventures that neither of us can even read, but the idea that they exist is informative, that it's building on that tradition and it can build on that tradition because its job is to introduce you to the gumshoe way of doing a Cthulhu game. Okay, and so the, um, because the obvious question is that if we were to you know, do a second edition or we were to redo the book or whatever else, per the thing you always say, do you believe that the new adventure, if there is one, should be a Kingsbury horror type adventure that is all those, you know, fairly arcane uh, qualities? Or do you think that there should be a, no, we're going to fight a lich in a basement with a floaty knife, haunted house type adventure for Trail of Cthulhu that is the actual, you know, introductory in the sense of this is how Cthulhu game is is historically played. I, I would say that you would want something that does what uh, Kingsbury Horror does, because fight a lich with a floaty knife is not the slice of Cthulhu that Gumshoe sets out to do. Mm -hmm. So that you want something that is that sets out not to just be a generic Cthulhu thing, but a trail-specific thing, so that its emphasis on being in the 1930s is also very important. And that's, uh, you know, your equivalent of the Feng Shui adventure that has you fighting a faction in the in the Qi War, mm -hmm. uh, that that is telling you something about what to expect from other uh, trail experiences. And so you might want to break it down, and you might look at it again and find the equivalent of the, oh, well, this encounter is in a confined space thing. It's a non-crippling thing that you wouldn't do now and change that. But that I think Kingsbury Horror does a pretty good job of telegraphing uh, what future Pelgrane Cthulhu scenarios are going to be like and is much closer to them than the floaty knife lich. Okay. Is there any other thing you always that you always want to say about the thing you always say, Robin? Or have we said I always at about this point in a segment say it's time for our next segment? As we head up a creepy set of cobweb stairs, a portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowering at us overhead, as we pass a curious sigil in a distasteful ichor, we realize that we are entering the perhaps somewhat dusty parlor of our pal the consulting occultist, and this week we're going to finish up a sort of trilogy we've been having on and off of the major occultists slash uh, chancers of 
Enlightenment era of France and beyond and bring us to the Comte de Saint-Germain. He showed up in our last Cagliostro episode, which followed our uh, Franz Anton Mesmer episode as someone who was uh, copying the Comte's act, as it were. So, uh, Ken, let's uh, back up a bit, though, and find out where the mysterious, allegedly quasi-immortal figure of the Comte de Saint-Germain first entered history as we know it. Okay, he first enters history as we know it in perhaps the best way you possibly can, which is to say he enters it in Horace Walpole's diaries, which is, you know, if you, if you want to talk about your, your A-list introduction into history, that's the one. And Horace Walpole in 1745 mentions that he ran into or the sort of gossip or news about... Well, if, if you're going to interim this way, you're going to have to give us the, the quick 101 on Horace Walpole. Okay. Horace Walpole is the creator of the Gothic. He's the creator of the horror genre. He was a wig of sort of flamboyantly unorthodox sexual practice, and he didn't care who knew it. He was grossly rich, and he had huge amounts of influence at court, and he pretty much wrote chatty letters and diaries to everyone, which is why people pay a lot of attention to Horace Walpole, that and the fact that he was kind of the kingmaker for the early uh, Hanoverian court for a while. And uh, they don't read The Castle of Otranto, which is his first, which is his gothic novel, which began the whole genre, which is a shame because it's actually pretty good. But anyway. Yes. And, and not particularly horrific, but that's another hut. No, yes. It's a whole different hut. The, the gothic hut is going to be an exciting hut when we get there. Anyway, he writes, uh, the other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count de Saint-Germain. He has been here these two years, which means that we know that he gets to London in 1743 and will not tell who he is or whence he came but professes that he does not go by his right name and that he never has any dealing with any woman. He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully, composes, and is mad and not very sensible. And that <laughs> is a great um, opener, right? Yes. He's arrested on being a spy for the Jacobites, but is released because there's no evidence of that, because, of course, there's no evidence of St. Germain ever accomplishing pretty much anything at that point. He just sort of shows up and goes around and tells people stories about having, you know, sort of having a mysterious fortune. He's basically acting like the opening guy in every, you know, Spanish prisoner long con where he establishes that he has some connection to the mysterious world and uh, you'd better pay attention to St. Germain because that's where the news and excitement is going to come from. Maybe you could sort of uh, gloss his uh, career and uh, find out why we still remember him today. After a couple of years of that, he wears out his welcome in London, being imprisoned, I guess we'll do that for you. He goes to Paris, which is the big time, the show, the big leagues of uh, occult grifting, and turns up at the court of Louis XV, uh, 1757 now, so he's been wandering around Europe for about a decade, and says that he's the Comte de Saint-Germain, and offers to repair people's diamonds as a favor to them. So it's like, oh, monsieur, whatever you are, you have a, you have a diamond, let me take it back to my... And I noticed it has a flaw. Let me take it back to my laboratory, and I'll give you your diamond repaired of its flaw. And whether this was a grift to swap out fake diamonds for real diamonds, or whether it was a lost leader and he actually had some gem-making or jewelry skills, there's a very strong possibility that he has sort of genuine, you know, at least enough jeweler's knowledge to be able to uh, create these, these perfect fakes. But he's sort of brings himself in via diamonds to the the real reason why people want to pay attention to him, which is that he's immortal and that he knew Jesus and that he's uh, lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And he has a vast fund of interesting conversation. Right. And the, the number of years he claims to have lived sort of varies over the course of his career from a 
a paltry 500 to uh, knowing Jesus. Yes, right. And it is made more complex by the fact that uh, people keep impersonating him whenever they want to get a free lunch, and so they will often drop the more troublesome versions of his impostures, because he was a pretty smooth guy, but there's a record of someone meeting St. Germain and talking about Jesus, or saying, you know, Jesus Christ or something, and, and St. Germain says, ah, yes, I warned the Jew that he would come to a bad end. And it turns out that that is someone who is impersonating St. Germain, not real St. Germain, because real St. Germain would never have been so stupid as to say that. But uh, real St. Germain did wind up sort of, you know, weaseling his way into court and therefore making enemies. So when King Louis sends him on a peace mission to Holland, it, the Duc de Choiseul, his, his great enemy, betrays him to the English and, uh, and screws the whole thing up. He winds up uh, going to the Austrian Netherlands there, building a alchemical factory or a dyeing factory, depending on which source you read. Whether you read the fun source or the boring source. Exactly. He's, he's basically, you know, getting investments for his new kinds of dyes and things like that. And again, by now, there's no way of telling how much of that is pure con artistry and how much of it is he's a guy who actually knows a little bit about, you know, how chemical dyes work. That does manage to explain a lot about his diamond and jewelry practice, and it also explains a lot of his other things. And it also goes to just how out there you could be and still be near the centers of power, right? That you right, yeah. are making these, what one might think were patently crazy claims about uh, being immortal, yet you could still be sent by the king on a diplomatic mission as, as if that wasn't going to go bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, well, that makes sense. He's, he's, he's a smart guy, and he's, and he's uh, lived for 500 years. Surely he'll, <laughs> he'll make an ideal uh, diplomatic uh, ambassador. But, of course, one of the questions is, to what extent is King Louis using him as a stalking horse? Right, that if you send the crazy guy who draws attention and, and talks about meeting Charlemagne all the time, that distracts people from your real emissary who's going in the other way. I mean, people uh, don't necessarily know everything about the French foreign ministry, even back then. He was an admiral in the Russian Navy for a bit, uh, honest and true, for real, and invented a purgative called Russian tea, which is uh, still sort of used. Uh, Count Orlov basically gave him a commission. And Count Orlov was sort of uh, Catherine the Great's special personal friend for a while. He wrote music, very, very good music, that was performed by a lot of top composers. And uh, Bach actually copied out one of his compositions in his notebook. So we know that Bach at least thinks it's worth looking at. Um, he would know. He would know. And so there's a lot about St. Germain that we don't necessarily know what his real background or what his real skills are. Eventually, he's getting old, he's getting tired of the grift, it's harder and harder to be immortal when, you know, your joints are creaky and your hair is gray. And so he shows up at the court of the Count of Hesse-Castle and tries, you know, once more to pull the, uh, the, the old scam. And it works because Prince Charles of Hesse-Castle is sort of mystically inclined and a, and a amiable goof, and he gives him a fairly damp and unpleasant castle to live in, and he, he lives there and, uh, eventually he dies. And when he dies, they find him, you know, uh, there's a nice little bit from the court of Hesse Castle. Today died the immortal man, St. Germain, and then they inventory his belongings and their kind of crummy belongings. He doesn't have any jewels. He doesn't have a violin. He doesn't have any, you know, occult implements or books or anything like that. It's, it's hard to save for retirement when you live forever. It, it is, you know, it, it's a pre-existing condition that was not covered by the primitive insurance plans of the day. And so he died. And then immediately People began saying, oh, no, he faked his death so that he could con continue doing his magical work. And people 
who were at the great Masonic conference in Willemsbad, wrote to each other that they'd seen St. Germain show up there and uh, give them the, the secret word and say, don't worry, boys, everything, you know, uh, you don't believe that foolishness about me being dead, do you? I had to do it to cover up my real work. And yeah. then he, he sort he of becomes... He suddenly looked a lot more like Peter Capaldi. Exactly. Uh, or Nick Fury. And he keeps coming back to um, uh, sort of warn people of, of occult danger or overthrow the French monarchy or save people from the overthrow of the French monarchy, depending on the politics of the guy telling the St. Germain story. And so he's sort of the Elvis of the European underground, uh, the European occult underground there for probably, you know, it's actively done for the next 50 or 60 years and then done as a shout out or a callback or a sampling uh, uh, really up until now. I think his last documented appearance is in the 50s when people saw him and then they asked him if he was the mysterious alchemist Fulcanelli and he gave them a mysterious answer and everyone was super happy with that. So I guess he must be uh, bummed now about omnipresent suspicionless surveillance. That makes him a lot harder for him to uh, creep around being immortal. I, I assume that the, the Count de Saint-Germain is somehow either behind the omnipresent surveillance or has figured out an alchemical dye that makes him invisible to uh, cameras and so he can sneak around, uh, you know, hiding in plain sight, as it were. Uh, one of the other th interesting things about the Count is that he has, like, a million aliases, and you just work under just alias after alias after alias doing his business, and so you would, you know, write to the guy who supposedly owned his alchemical factory, and he, and he would be, um, uh, say... Uh, the Marquis de Montferrat would, would own the factory, and they would write to the Marquis, and they would say, about this alchemical factory, he says, well, if you don't believe me, you can ask the Chevalier Scherning. And, uh, and so they'd write off to the Chevalier Scherning, and the Chevalier Scherning would write back and say, no, no, he's fine. Um, uh, Belletti is his banker. You can trust him. And it turns out that Montferrat, Belletti, and Scherning are all St. Germain aliases that he's set up. Uh, uh, he also pretended to be or claimed to be the Comte Aglier, the Marquis d'Amar, Comte de Bellemare, Monsieur Castellan. Giovannini, that was how he signed some of his musical comp compositions. Uh, Soltikov, which may, he may have picked up while he was in Russia. Lord Stormont, that was his diplomatic cover name. The uh, Graf Tsarogi. Count Weldon, which is another one that he used in, in Britain before he settled on St. Germain. Weldon is one of his earliest aliases. And Prince Ragashi, because he claimed to be the missing heir to the throne of Transylvania. Uh, the missing heir had been missing ever since he was overthrown by... I think the Habsburgs, I think it was the jerk Habsburgs that overthrew the house of Ragashki. But he sort of would occasionally drop the news that he was uh, the, the missing prince of, of Transylvania. And he may have had a, a beautiful hope that someone would say, yeah, I don't know. I've got a spare army. Let's put this guy on the throne of Transylvania. That'd be fun. Now, one of the great things about St. Germain is that uh, you can play him as a player character in pretty much any uh, time period subsequent to the Enlightenment or even before if you wanted. So, for example, because <laughs> he's immortal. He's immortal. So. <laughs> Uh, in a long-running over-the-edge campaign uh, that I ran, my big over-the-edge campaign, one of the players was uh, Saint-Germain, and that was a, a lot of fun. And you could put him in, you know, he could be your, a player in your uh, Trail of Cthulhu game. He could be, a, you could then play him again when you later play a Delta Green campaign set in the modern day. Are there particular pop culture versions of Saint-Germain that you would point people to? Specifically, I would point them to Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's series of uh, they begin as horror novels and rapidly become romances with a tiny, tiny horror component, but they are historical novels, all of which star the Count de Saint-Germain as a vampire, and they began with Hotel Transylvania, which is probably still among the best of them. I, I might even say it is the best, although I think the, the sort of the formula becomes a little clearer and a little better later on. 
but that's one of my favorite ones. He shows up in Foucault's Pendulum a good deal, uh, which, of course, is always worth doing. And in Catherine Kurtz's terrific novel, Two Crowns for America, uh, in which the Masons are fighting against the British, the hated British, uh, to put the Stuarts on the throne of America for some bizarre reason, um, St. Germain is one of the big uh, plotters there. So I'm, I'm very fond of... Uh, I like Catherine Kurtz's sort of occult, happy time adventure books a, a good bit. She's sort of got a, a Dumasian sense of of the of the adventurous and, and not necessarily Dumasian sense of the ridiculous. But the uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough novels are, I mean, the first eight or nine of them are, are pretty great. I think that the formula, once you've read enough of them, you can sort of write all of them yourself. But the Tempting Fate is where um, uh, St. Germain fights Nazis, so that's nice. And there's a short story collection that she did called the St. Germain Chronicles, which I think includes a pretty good essay on St. Germain that she wrote, and then also has a lot of pretty good short stories of him uh, throughout the like 19th and 20th century. And would you say that uh, even more than Cagliostro, he is a fun, colorful figure, a doer, but not a thinker who affected other occult uh, thought later on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people have then later on in claimed that he was the creator of uh, something called uh, Trinosophy, which is like the three wisdoms. So it's magic, uh, alchemy, and Kabbalah blended together in sort of a theosophical goo uh, or proto-theosophical goo. He owned a copy at one point, but there's no evidence that he wrote it. But the theosophists decided that he wrote it and that he's sort of the founding father of theosophy, that he's the ascended master. And there was a cult around him called the I Am cult that still exists today. The I Am Temple of St. Germain is in Chicago. But it had a number of fairly unseemly splinter groups that were much happier with American fascism than one hopes the Count de St. Germain would have been. Uh, because he fights Nazis, we know that. Because he fights from... Nazis, we yeah. know that from top-notch novels. And so I think that there is a desire to make him into an occult master that he would have loved and encouraged uh, were he to know about it. There's no real evidence that he ever pretended to be a Mason, which is interesting that the Mason sort of adopted him as their Elvis almost immediately after his death. Um, and I think it may have been that it gets reinforced because the anti-Masons could also adopt him as their Elvis and say that it's his fault that all these horrible things happened. But he is, in actual life, much more of a interesting con man who may or may not have known some alchemy or known enough about alchemy to fake his way through a conversation of it, because I suspect he, like me, had you know, five minutes of material on everything, depending on what the king wanted to talk about. Uh, well, speaking of having five minutes of material, I think we've run out of our allotted minutes of this podcast, and it's time to uh, once again uh, pat ourselves on the back and go to the king and uh, request uh, some uh, shekels for the next one. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The World of Ataltus. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Make this the universe in which the podcast continues by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Joining such illustrious donors as Andrew Miller. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or immortality potion by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.